if you have your Bible today, turn to the book of Micah. Micah chapter 6. It's in the Old Testament. Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, and Micah. So look for Micah chapter 6. We'll get there in just a few minutes, but I'll give you a head start and and, uh, you'll be able to uh, see uh, where we're going in just a moment. Um, We very much do appreciate uh, the opportunity to go to Israel. Uh, The Bible comes alive uh, when you're able to see these places where Jesus and other biblical characters uh, taught and did miracles and uh, walked the earth. And um, we have some fantastic teachers of our own here, in, uh, here at Broadview Baptist Church, right here in Lubbock, Texas. I was privileged to be able to sit in on, in a class uh, today with uh, Vicki Reynolds and her Sunday school class, and they, they extended uh, me an invitation to come and uh, be a part. And uh, she is a fantastic teacher. I know that many of you are missing Winston. Uh, right now, Winston Berryman, um, he is recovering and he'll be back real soon. Another incredible teacher. Um, uh, we have uh, Ellen is a, a great teacher of our ladies. We have teachers in our children's department, our youth department. We have a, uh, a couple of other teachers uh, that will be starting soon. Uh, and I don't want to leave out um, Steve Winters. He's teaching our uh, young adult class. And Steve, thank you again publicly. I want to thank you for filling in for me at the last minute when I was diagnosed with COVID last Saturday. And that's the, that's the worst thing in the world, not having COVID. The worst thing in the world for a preacher is you get sick on the day you're supposed to preach or the day before you're supposed to preach. And, uh, and it's good to have someone as gifted as Steve uh, to be able to fill in for me last week. And also before that, uh, John DePoe, Uh, filled in for me on the 17th. And uh, John, thank you for doing, again, a masterful job of explaining why the Bible is true. And uh, John, in fact, will be one of our new teachers, beginning Sunday school teachers, beginning next week. He'll be teaching our college and career, uh, 20-somethings type of class. And uh, so we're looking forward to that. And also Toby McGugan, uh, near the back over here, uh, will be teaching a, a class for uh, mixed adults or mixed up adults. I don't know which, but uh, Toby is a great teacher himself and, and he'll be uh, leading a class. If you're already sort of plugged into a class, uh, I would encourage you to uh, consider the possibility of uh, helping Toby starting out his class. If you're of that age group uh, for, for uh, John DePoe's class, you're not going to find a better teacher uh, who's going to speak to the college and young adult experience than John. And so I'd encourage you to jump in there as well. Um, So uh, in Micah chapter 6, we'll get there in just a moment. But I want to start out with a a comment that I think that you can agree with. And it's this. Bad ideas have bad consequences. You could probably um, point to a number of areas in your own life where you found that to be true. Bad ideas having bad consequences. I look, in the, uh, look at the situation in our country today, and I see a lot of bad consequences uh, that have become fruit in American society today, and they are the result of bad ideas. And I believe there is no worse idea that has caused more difficult problems than the idea of moral 
relativism. Now, you might wonder, what is moral relativism? It's basically this. It's the bankrupt concept that there's no absolute standard of what is right and wrong. So it's the idea that we've heard time and time again on talk shows and everywhere you go. Well, I say this is right for me, and I say that is wrong for me, and you might have a different opinion. And so that's moral relativism, where we believe that each person gets to pick and choose. Each person gets to decide what is right and what is wrong for themselves. And I call moral relativism bankrupt because that is what it will leave you. It will leave you ungrounded. It will leave you bereft. It will leave you uncertain. It will leave you literally incapable of taking a moral stand. And there was a book written not too long ago that had as its subtitle these words, and it aptly describes moral relativism. It's like having your feet firmly planted in midair. That is what moral relativism is like. And moral relativists come in many manifestations. You'll find them in politics, you'll find them in businesses, and you'll find some, unfortunately, even leading churches. But the ground that has become the most fertile ground to grow relativistic thought is our universities. You see, there was a time, at one time, not too long ago, moral relativism was the connecting thread that bound together almost all members of graduating classes of secular universities. But now, it is the benchmark of almost all incoming classes. In other words, time and time again, local school districts have taken it upon themselves to teach children that there is no such thing as right or wrong. Some school districts, especially in left-leaning states, are doing the devil's work for the universities now. You have teachers and administrators and librarians in many places teaching children that there is no right or wrong. They teach Johnny that he, if he thinks that girls have cooties, well, he must be gay. Or they teach that if he doesn't think that girls have cooties, well, he must really be a girl. And so where are the parents in all of this? Time and time again, there's a growing epidemic of parents being asleep at the wheel. Most parents have all but abdicated instructing their own children to discern right from wrong. And so they essentially offer up their children as living sacrifices to Caesar, and then wonder why these same children come home saying, Daddy, I don't know if I'm a boy or a girl. And to make matters worse, we have even Christian parents sometimes who will allow their children to stay home instead of go to church with them. It seems that if a, a teenager or an elementary age student complains about going to church because it seems boring, it's not as exciting as burying their heads in their phones and playing mindless video games, that these parents are perfectly content 
letting the tail wag the dog. The last bastions of morality remain the family and the church, at least in theory. And I want you to understand something very important. That even though I'm talking about right and wrong today, I need you to understand that it is not the church's purpose in existence to establish what is simply right and wrong for people in society. We do not exist to be the minions or to be the, the lemmings of politicians who try to keep all of you people at bay and try to keep you people well behaved. That's not the reason we exist. The reason we exist is to teach people about the Lord Jesus Christ. We exist to be disciple makers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, one of the results of that is that if we're doing a good job, that the people that are listening to the message and taking it home in their hearts will indeed be very moral people themselves. But I want to impress upon you who are parents that the decisions that you make today with regard to your children will impact your family multiple generations from now. There does indeed exist something called the four-generation fade. And it goes like this, that the parents today who don't make church a high priority for their kids, well, that will lead to the next successive generation, that those kids will grow up, and make church even less of a priority for their kids. And then those kids will grow up and make church no priority for their kids. And then those kids will grow up with no concept of God. You see, parents, your priorities today will impact generations. The greatest thing that happened to Amy and me on our trip to Israel was this. We received a text message photo from our three kids, all in their 20s, on Sunday morning because they all went to church. They all happened to be wearing blue. That was the reason for the photo. They wanted to show us that they all wore blue today. But what mattered to me most was that my kids, raised and grown, of their own volition, love the Lord, and they go to church each and every Sunday. The decisions, the priorities, parents, that you put into place in your family will impact generations. There's always the possibility that a, a child will wander off and do their own thing, but you set those priorities in place. You teach them the Word of God. You go to a Bible-believing church that teaches them the Word of God. You make that a high priority, and God's Word will not return void. It will not return void. Too many Christians today, I believe, have lost the fear of God. We've lost the fear of God. If we had the fear of God... We would not be so concerned about the possibility of winning $1.1 billion in the lottery. But instead, many Christians, thinking that's the way to God's blessings, they bow down to the false gods of luck and fortune, and they buy that lottery ticket. And that same amount of money 
might as well have been thrown in the trash. If we had the fear of God, we would not make baseball and softball and volleyball more important to our kids than being in church and hearing the Word of God taught both on their level and from the pulpit. We've lost the fear of God in our culture today. And what is it that's caused us to lose the fear of God? Well, it's a lie. It's a lie that says, there's no right or wrong. There's no moral standard. There's only personal opinions and and private preferences and individual proclivities and tribal mores and community fictions. That's all there is when we talk about morality. There's no right or wrong, and all of that is a lie. As Scripture says back in Judges, it could very well be applied to our own lives today. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Well, there's going to be an accountability coming someday. And you might wonder, well, you know, what's what's the big deal? What's the big deal if everyone does what's right in their own eyes? What's the big deal if I just decide this is right for me and and that's wrong for me? What's the big deal? Why does it even matter? Why does it matter if wrong or right exists? Why does there need to be a standard? I want you to think about this for a minute. If there's no such thing as right and wrong, then no one can ever accuse anyone else of wrongdoing. Think about that. If there's no right or wrong, you can't accuse anyone else of ever doing wrong. Have you ever heard people say this? Well, you can't tell me that my lifestyle is wrong. There's no such thing as right or wrong. It's just your opinion. Have you ever heard that? We hear that constantly. And then the same people that will tell us that there's no such thing as right or wrong, what do they do in the next breath? They accuse us of wrongdoing. They say, you're a bad person. You're a homophobe. You're a bigot. You're closed-minded. You don't love people. You don't respect people. And so on the one hand, they say there's no such thing as right or wrong. And on the other hand, they say that we're wrong. That's what we call logically incoherent. You can't have it both ways. If there's no such thing as right or wrong, then you can't ever tell someone else that they did something wrong. Wrong doesn't exist in that world. The most that any moral relativist can ever say is, I don't like it. Murder. Most of us would say murder is wrong. But a true moral relativist who doesn't believe in right and wrong, the most they can ever say is, I don't like murder. Moral relativists cannot say adultery is wrong. They can only say, Honey, my personal preference is that you not cheat on me. Not that it's wrong, mind you. I understand that if your personal preference is to fool around, that's okay. But my personal preference is that you don't. Of course, if you choose to cheat on me, I understand it's just my opinion against yours. And who's to say that I'm right? Maybe you're right. Oh, yeah, there is no right. That's just not a a, a real world that moral relativists live in. But that's the consequence of there being no right and wrong. And if there is no right or wrong, no one can complain about the problem of evil. You know what the problem of evil is. It's where an atheist will say something like, well, with all the suffering in the world, with all the death and the famine and the wars and the murder and all the terrible things in this world, that proves there's not a God because if God is good and God is all uh, powerful, then, then he would stop all of this suffering. That's the problem of evil. 
But the same atheists who make this claim are really in themselves moral relativists. That say, they say there is no right or wrong. And if there is no right or wrong, then there is no problem of evil. There is no evil. If there's no right or wrong, the only thing that exists in that world are biological circumstances, interactions that have no moral value. And so if you don't believe in right and wrong, then you cannot complain about evil in the world. If there's no right or wrong, then no one can accept praise either. You can't ever say thank you if there's no right or wrong. Why? Because thank you is an expression that something good was done. And in a world where there's no right and wrong, nothing good is ever done. Whether it's passing the salt or whether it's rescuing a person in danger, none of that is good. And so if you're ever the recipient of anything like that, you cannot say thank you if there is no right or wrong. But the reality is nobody lives in that world, right? If someone does something good for you, you automatically say thank you. Why? Because God has built within each one of us an instinctive understanding that there is a right and wrong and that right, good, was done to us. And so we reciprocate by saying thank you. If there is no right or wrong, then no one can seek justice because justice does not exist. The, world, the words justice and injustice, they carry moral overtones. And a true moral relativist can never be concerned about morality. So to a moral relativist, there's no difference between helping a little old lady across the street and running her over. It's the same thing, morally. It makes no difference because... Good and bad, right and wrong, evil and, and good, they, those things don't exist. To a person who believes that there's no right or wrong, they can never say black lives matter. They can never say all lives matter. They can never say blue lives matter. They, the only thing a true moral relativist can say is no lives matter. That's it. And if there's no right or wrong, then no one should ever feel guilty. Why do you feel guilty? Well, I, I did something wrong. No, you didn't. There's no such thing as wrong. Stop feeling guilty. But there is a word that we use for people that, who never feel guilty. It's the word sociopath. Only a sociopath can commit multiple crimes against others and never feel guilty about it. And only a sociopath actually lives in this world where there is no right or wrong. So the next time that you come across someone who says, Oh, there's no such thing as right or wrong, just your opinion against mine, do this little experiment. Ask them for their wallet. Now, they're going to hesitate, but ask them for their wallet anyway. And so just ask them, take out their wallet, and promise them you'll give it back at the end of the experiment. Okay. And so if, if they are indeed trusting enough to hand you the wallet, then here's what you do. Open up the wallet and take out the money. Take out the money from the wallet and put the money in your pocket and hand the wallet back to them. And watch what happens. What's going to happen? We all know what's going to happen. They're going to complain. Hey, you can't do that. That's wrong. Oh, wait, time out. What do you mean that's wrong? There's no such thing as right and wrong. Right? And so you'll prove to them that even though they claim that there's no such thing as right or wrong that their instincts within them, that God has placed within them, shows them that when you took their money, that was a wrong thing to do. And so when you hand the money back to them, which you need to do, 
When you hand the money back to them, say, I'm giving you this money back because it's the right thing to do. You see, this world in which people say, oh, there's no right or wrong, it's not a world that any of us actually live in. So who is it that determines what is right and what is wrong? It is the Lord. It is our Creator. That's where Micah 6 comes into view. If you have your Bible open to Micah 6, in this passage, God brings a lawsuit against His people, against Judah. And so, when you have a lawsuit, if you've ever been sued, and I hope you've never been sued, but if you've ever been sued, what happens before you ever get to the court? You get served, don't you? Someone comes along, a process server comes along, and they hand you some papers, and they say, you've been served. And it's not quite the same as a waiter who says, you've been served your bread or your water or whatever. Uh, This is probably not as pleasant. But you've been served, and you have to show up in court, right? Well, Micah, the prophet, is the process server. And so here's what we read in verse 1. Now listen to what the Lord is saying. Here's what the Lord says. Rise, plead your case before the mountains, and let your hills hear your complaint. And so Micah brings this message to Judah. And they are told to rise and give an account for themselves before the witnesses. Who are the witnesses? The mountains and the hills. They will be the witnesses. And then in verse 2. We have the charge. Who's the charge to? It's not the charge against the defendant, God's people. But the judge sitting on the throne gives a charge to the witnesses to listen to the case. He says in verse 2, Listen to the Lord's lawsuit, you mountains and enduring foundations of the earth, because the Lord has a case against His people, and He will argue it against Israel. And then in verse 3, here's the beginning of the case against the defendant. In verse 3 we read, here's what the Lord says, My people, what have I done to you? Or how have I wearied you? Testify against me. Here's what's going on. God's people are saying, Oh God, you're so mean. You've made us suffer. You don't provide for us the way we want. You're so mean. And so they have this complaint against God. And God says, I'm going to settle this with a lawsuit. And so God says, what have I done? What have I done to you? How have I worn you down? How have I wearied you? Testify against me. But I want you to notice something in verse 3. God still calls Judah My people. This is like, have you ever said this to your kids? No matter what happens next, you're still my child. Have you ever said something like that? Now your child should pick up that something unpleasant is about to happen next. But they have the assurance that they haven't lost their daddy or their mommy. They're still your child. 
God says, my people. And then he lays into them. He says, what have I done to you? And God answers his own question by reminding us what he's done. Look at verse 4. Here's what God's done. God answers his own question. Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from that place of slavery. I sent Moses, Aaron, and Miriam ahead of you. I want you to think about this, not in terms of Judah and Israel, but I want you to think about this in terms of your own life. What has God done for you? He's redeemed you from slavery. Slavery to sin. God has purchased you. He redeemed you when Jesus died on the cross and paid a high price for your salvation. And he's freed you from your sin. What has God ever done for me? Christians might say, here's what God has done for you. He's redeemed you from slavery. That's the first thing God has done for you. And God has also gifted you. He's gifted you. What what gifts has God given to me? God has given you leaders in your life whom he has appointed. Now for Judah, God mentions three of them. God mentions Moses, who is the great lawgiver. He mentions Aaron, who is the high priest, who would mediate between God and man for them. And he mentions Miriam, who was a poet and a prophetess, who would inspire the people to obey God. Today, for you, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, God has raised up and appointed pastors for you, under-shepherds of the Lord Jesus Christ, who lead and serve God's people. The Lord's under-shepherds are to provide for the flock of God and to protect the flock of God. What has God done for us? He's done an awful lot for us, if we'll think about it. He's rescued us from slavery, and He's given us leaders who are there for us. Not only has God done this, but God has turned our enemies' curses into blessings. Look at the next verse. Verse 5. My people, again He says my people. My people, remember what King Balak of Moab Moab proposed. What Balaam, son of Beor, answered him. And what happened from the Acacia Grove to Gilgal, so that you may acknowledge the Lord's righteous acts. I'm going to go out on a limb and, and uh, gently suggest that perhaps this week in your devotional studies, you might not have come across Balak and Balaam or the Acacia Grove or Gilgal. So I'll explain what is going on here very briefly. God is saying, way back when, when Balak, the king of Moab, he went to the prophet of God, he went to Balaam, and he said, Balaam? I want you to bring a curse upon God's people. And Balaam said, gotcha. And instead, Balaam brought a blessing on God's people. God was in that. God turned our enemies' curses into blessings. He's still doing that today. And then what happened at the Acacia Grove? What happened there was, after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, and really 38 years were in one place, and two years they were wandering, but they finally got to the eastern part of the uh, Jordan River, and they, played in the, they stayed in this place called the Acacia Grove, right on the eastern part of the Jordan River. And then when it was at the proper time, the appointed time, God dried up the Jordan River at the point where they would go across, and they walked on dry, dry land. And they made their way to a place called Gilgal. Here's the point. 
Not only does God deliver us from slavery to sin, not only does God take our enemies' curses and turn them into blessings, but God gives us rest. God gives us peace. Shalom. But how does Judah take all of these blessings of God? How do they perceive them? The same way that far too many believers respond to God today. We can't please you, God. Nothing is good enough for you. And so they say in verse 6, What should I bring before the Lord when I come down, uh, come come to bow before God on high? Should I come before Him with burnt offerings, with year old calves? That's their response. Verse 7. Would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with 10,000 streams of oil? Should I give my firstborn for my transgression, the offspring of my body for my own sin? It's as if they're saying, would that make you happy, God? That's their response. But the Lord doesn't want burnt offerings. The Lord doesn't want rams. The Lord doesn't want oil. He wants our devotion. He wants us to love Him. And when we love the Lord, we love other people too. When we love other people, we treat them right. And now the Lord has heard their defense. And He's ready now to pronounce a judgment. We're just going to read one verse of the judgment that the Lord pronounces. It's in verse 8. Mankind, he has told each of you what is good and what it is the Lord requires of you. Three things. To act justly. To love faithfulness. And to walk humbly with your God. These are the things that are dear to God's heart. God cares deeply about these three things. To act justly means that we have fair and right relationships with others in the community, whether it's the community of faith or the larger community where we live. To act justly means that we are straight legally. It means that we're honest financially. And it means that we don't just talk about justice, but we do it. We do what is just. To love faithfulness means faithful love in action. Not just talking about love, but acting in love doing loving things, having a constant love for God and for people. And to walk humbly with our God simply means that we live the way that God wants us to. Not our own way, but we live according to the standards of God. You see, there is such a thing as right and wrong. And it has nothing to do with your opinion 
or mine. Moral rightness is a spiritual law that God has written into the fabric of the universe. It is as immutable as the law of gravity. And the person who wishes to defy it is as foolish as the person who jumps in the air thinking they will be able to defy gravity. This world may change. This world may change all of its morals. It may call wrong right and right wrong. People may be tossed to and fro by the seas of society, but right and wrong do not change. The Bible says that all of us have committed wrongs. All of us have fallen short of God's standards. All of us, but one, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus alone committed no wrongs. Jesus alone lived righteously. And Jesus, nevertheless, was on the receiving end of the wrongs of humanity. Jesus was put to death on a cross to pay the penalty for our wrongs. And Jesus rose from the grave to bring us to God. Today, knowing that there is right and wrong, knowing that we have committed wrongs before God, and yet God is willing and able to forgive us of our sins, how can we come to know this incredible God, we have to believe that God himself became human in Christ. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was in the flesh, as the scriptures say. We need to believe that Christ died for our sins once for all time, that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And we need to trust in Christ and surrender to Him as Lord over all. If we will get our own hearts right by surrendering ourselves to the Lord, then He will guide our paths and He'll never, ever leave us.